Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey speaks on how to follow spiritual leaders. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. We're on our Exodus series, and um, I am really excited about the message, and I hope it comes across right. This is one of these things that, like, if you talk about, you don't talk about it well, you can come across uh, 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 self-serving. Um, and that's not at all what I'm trying to do. Um, let me recap you real quick. The text we're working through tonight um, comes on the heels of the 10th plague hitting Egypt. And if you guys remember the story, uh, we spoke about the 10 plagues for a couple of weeks. And uh, the 10th plague is the most intense of the plagues. And it's where often thought the angel of the Lord. And what we saw is this actually the Lord himself comes down out of heaven and um, kills the firstborn son of everyone who didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And uh, it illustrates for us a truth that resounds today uh, which is essentially the harder the heart, the harder the hammer. Right? Pharaoh had a hardened heart, and every time he had an opportunity to repent, every time that he had an opportunity um, to relent and let God's people go, every time that God drew, drew on him, uh, it, it, his heart got harder and harder. God initially started with lesser pain and lesser sufferings and lesser plagues, but every time he would ask uh, Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh would put his feet in the ground and would um, just encamp and entrench himself in his rebellion. And ultimately, that led to the hardest hammer of all, which was the 10th plague. And, and even the mighty Pharaoh had to um, loosen his grip on the nation of Israel. And so where we left off last week was uh, we left off with Pharaoh looking at Moses and saying, all right, have it your way. You in. Take your people and go. Now, tonight we're going to hit uh, the thing that leads up to really the Red Sea parting. Okay? And so we may hit the Red Sea a little bit, but um, what essentially happens, it's important for you to know, well, I'll read the text here in a minute, but what's, what happens is, is Pharaoh lets Israel go, but kind of gets around all of his friends and all of his, you know, all of his leaders and they start to regret the decision. They're, they're angry, they're bitter, they're resentful. And uh, they decide, you know what? They're not actually free. We're going to follow them. We're going to pursue them and we're going to kill them. We're going to destroy the entire nation. And so that's what they try to do. And they, Pharaoh gets his army together and he starts pursuing Israel. Now, at the same time, you can read about it in Exodus 13 and 14. At the same time, what we're seeing is God is actually giving very specific instructions to Moses and to the nation of Israel. So it's not like they leave Egypt and they just start wandering. That's not actually how it works. What happens is they leave Egypt and God tells them very specifically, I want you to go here, then I want you to go here, then I want you to go here, and it would end up that they are facing the Red Sea. And they hit the Red Sea, the promised land's on the other side, and it's at this point in time that Pharaoh and his army would approach and crest the hill putting Israel, no doubt, between a rock and a hard place. We're going to talk about what happens right after that uh, in tonight's message. But before we do, I, I need to, um, I, I want to give you like a Bible lesson. Like it was really helpful how to read your Bible kind of thing. 
Um, and you'll hear me use this term a lot um, called a narrative thread. And I want to just take a moment and give you the importance of narrative threads in the Bible and explain what they are, um, because they're very helpful as we read the text. Okay, a narrative thread is this. There's, there's when you read the Bible, what you'll see oftentimes is there are isolated events, and then there are things that happen in patterns, right? And, and you'll see like a pattern, um, you know, maybe uh, one person does this, and the next person does the exact same thing, and it results in the same way, and the next person does the same thing, and it results in the same way. And you realize it's not an isolated event, but rather it's a thread. It's what we're going to call a narrative thread. And there are two kinds of narrative threads when you read the Bible. There's a meta-narrative thread. Which is, which is something that you see a theme or a pattern that you see that exists from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And then there's what I'm going to call the micro-narrative. And, and with micro-narratives, you see these threads maybe in the arc of a person or uh, a particular book in the Bible. They may not span from Genesis to Revelation, but it's still very clear that there's a pattern. Now, why is this important? Because if you see a pattern like this, if you see a narrative thread like this in the Bible, that's because God's trying to get your attention, right? It's almost like a special emphasis being put on the text and it actually helps us to kind of get a true north as we're reading the text, okay? And, and what can happen if, I didn't even know these things existed, right? And, and once I found out that they existed and I needed to be looking for them, all of a sudden the Bible started to make a lot more sense. Right? It stopped becoming just a bunch of random stories, and I started realizing it's actually one entire story. And so um, let me give you two examples. I'm going to give you an example of a meta-narrative, and I'm going to give you an example of a micro-narrative, uh, and then I'm going to explain why. A meta-narrative would be something like we are saved by grace through faith. We see that as early as Genesis 4 with Abel, and we see that all the way throughout into the book of Revelation. We're saved by grace through faith. That's a meta-narrative, okay? Now, a micro-narrative, let's look at the book of Genesis. You guys remember that? We just did a whole year in Genesis, right? So this should be fresh in your mind. A micro-narrative could look like this. You see this pattern as you read the book. When fathers don't fulfill their role, things go bad. Right? Now, you can say that about the entire book of Genesis. Right? You see what happens with, with, with Adam not being a good father with Cain and Abel. You see what happens with Abraham not being a good father. And, and, and you see what happens with Isaac not being a good father and, and Jacob and, and so on and so forth. And there is this pattern that is established that when fathers don't do what they're supposed to do, bad things happen. So therefore, that should key us in on when we're reading the text. This is really important. Does that make sense? Meta-narrative versus micro-narrative. And that's how I read the Bible. That's how I want you to read the Bible. That's one way that I want you to read the Bible. Now, here's why this is important, because we're getting ready to see our first micro-narrative in the life of Moses. It's something I want you to pay attention to. It's very important. It's important because we ought to pay attention to it. And here in Exodus, our first micro-narrative that we're going to see is between a leader and his followers. A leader and his followers, specifically Moses and the nation of Israel. And this micro-narrative is really interesting because we saw it once already. If you guys remember a few weeks ago, what I talked about was uh, how Moses got the commission from the Lord, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he goes to the people of Israel and he's like, okay, guys, it's time. Your deliverance is at hand. I'm gonna go tell Pharaoh to let everybody go. Right? 
They're like, yes, absolutely. That sounds great. And then remember Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. And Pharaoh scoffs, says, who do you think you are? Who is this God? And then he increases Israel's labor. And then what you find is Israel immediately turns against Moses. Do you remember that? And they start saying uh, things like, God needs to judge you. You should be accursed. Right? And so the very people that Moses came to save, the very people that Moses came to lead, the very people who were very open about Moses uh, leading, and they were like, yeah, absolutely, that sounds great. We love your plan. They turned against Moses on a dime. That was the first time we saw it. And we're about to see that second thing now. And so it's going to turn from an isolated event to a little micro uh, narrative thread. It's not the only time we're going to see it. As a matter of fact, the reason I'm telling you this is because as we go throughout the book, you're going to see that this is a pattern that happens time and time again, where the people that Moses is leading will turn against him and it goes poorly. And here's, here's why I think the Lord is highlighting that uh, in the book, because we need to learn how to follow well. In an era where we talk a lot about leadership, Guys, you can go to any church in America and they're going to tell you how to be a great leader, how to lead in the kingdom, and, and they're going to make a big deal about it. We do it here. And it's a, it's a message that our culture desperately needs today. We need more godly leaders in the world today. Amen? Amen. We need to be preaching that message. But often what can happen is we don't preach the other message, which is we don't just need good leaders. We need really good followers. And that's not a very popular message. As a matter of fact, if we're honest, it can kind of be an offensive message. And I think one of the reasons that people maybe stray away a little bit from the idea of, of, of preaching about the importance of following and following well is it really can seem self-serving. Let me, the leader, tell you, the follower, how you should follow me the best. Right? Like that just sounds bad and it feels weird. And honestly, it is offensive. Everybody in this room, probably because you are young, just because you're young, it doesn't have anything to do with your gifting. Let me just tell you, just because you're young, you've probably come to a church altar and an older person has come to you and prayed over you and said, you're a leader. <laughs> yeah. Everybody in this room, you know, you're, you got the person. You're like, yeah, you're a leader. God's going to do mighty things through you. Right? We all get it. Okay. Now, listen, I'm not saying that that's not true. But how offended would you be if somebody came up to you and you're like in a moment in the Lord and you're in the altar and they're like, you're going to make a great follower of men. You are destined to be the greatest number three guy ever. Right? Every one of us would be like, uh, I don't like that. No, I'm supposed to be a leader. And it's, I think it's because we tend to think that, that leadership is more valuable in the kingdom of God than following. And that's actually not true. And so one, I think the reason that we don't talk about it is it's self-serving. Two, it can be kind of offensive, but I'm going to be honest with you. The Bible does talk about it. And so we're going to talk about it. Now I'm in actually in a really safe place to talk about this uh, because I'm in young adult ministry. Okay. So I'm actually not being super self-serving by telling you how to follow because the reality is most of you are not going to follow me for very long, right? By the nature of young adult ministry, I've got you for just a few years. Right. And so uh, most of you I've had, you know, probably less than two years. Uh, some of you I might have for four years. Some of you I've had for quite a long time, but it is the rare occasion. 
And so what I'm trying to do is teach you how to follow well, not for our ministry, right? Chances are, this is probably a supplementary ministry for you anyway. You have another church that you serve at, but really so that you can take this into the churches that you um, will go into and you will uh, perhaps maybe even be a leader and you're gonna need to know how, how people are supposed to follow you and how you're supposed to lead. And so my hope is that this message doesn't come across like, hey, let me tell you how to follow me because that's not at all what I'm trying to do. Everybody in this room to some degree is a follower. And I'll just tell you right now, there are people in the room who are called to be the number one guy or gal. They are called to that top tier of leadership. I'm just gonna tell you, I'm not one of them. I'll just flat out tell you, I have always felt in my heart that I'm not supposed to be the lead guy, that I'm supposed to serve someone else, that I'm supposed to serve someone else's dream and serve someone else's vision. And I have a desire to be a number two guy. Now you may not look at me that way. Some of you, you're like, hey, you're the number one guy. Here I am, but in Gate City, I am not. And I probably will not ever be because that's not a desire of mine. We need faithful people who are gonna follow um, godly men and women as leaders. Following is extremely difficult. Following is so hard. Especially when it comes to spiritual leadership, which is predominantly what we're talking about today. It is so difficult to follow a, a, a pastor or an elder, yet the Bible is very clear that we're all supposed to do it. Everybody, even leaders have pastors and leaders that they are supposed to submit to, honor, and, and trust. And it's hard because, because like, like being, being a spiritual leader, you're, you're not a boss, you're not a parent, you're not a friend, but you're kind of all of those things at the same time. Right? And then you got, you have, you have some uh, spiritual leaders who, who, uh, they want to tell you exactly what to do. And if you don't listen to them, then they would, would look down on you. And then you have some leaders who are like, I'm not, it's not my business to tell you anything at all. And it can be really hard to navigate the weird place of spiritual leadership. You have authority, but you don't really have authority. Right? And so before we get into the text, and I will read the text. Before we get into the text and talk about um, how uh, to be a follower, actually, I'm going to give you six temptations of a follower, something that if anybody in here has um, ever had to follow a spiritual leader before, you're going to get these temptations. Uh, but before we do, I, I think it would be very helpful if I explained to you a concept that maybe you're familiar with, but might not be as biblical as you think. Raise your hand by show of hands if you've ever heard of the term spiritual authority. Raise it high. Okay. Yeah, me too. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Spiritual authority is a very wonky thing. It's very, it can be very dangerous. It can be very helpful, but it can be very dangerous. And oftentimes, there's one particular text that we look at in the Bible. Um, it's Hebrews 13. Uh, and I think I have it here. Maybe I can even uh, read it for you so you get an understanding. Uh, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as, as those who will give an account. And, and, and the instruction to them is, is let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So that, that's like the one verse that we have that kind of, um, that we get this idea of spiritual authority of, of, or from. We have a lot of other verses that talk about, um, obeying governmental institutions and earthly institutions. But we really only have this one clear verse that's referencing a spiritual leader and a spiritual follower. 
And, and here's why I say that, because if you're anything like me, when you came into the church, this thing called spiritual authority was, was put over you and on you. And, and the implication is you are to do, say, and think however the leader tells you to do, say, and think. And then if you're not, then maybe you're not humble. And if you, if you don't listen, then maybe you're full of pride or, or maybe you're in rebellion. And I've talked to people who, who they were perhaps free thinkers and they maybe didn't agree with the pastor and they didn't do anything wrong, but they were still asked to leave the church because they were quote unquote rebellious. They, they bucked their spiritual authority and the pastor's spiritual authority. Now here's the thing. We got one verse that says it really clear. We have a few verses that you could maybe imply it from. We have about a dozen verses that talk about obeying uh, uh, earthly authorities, like, like your parents and like the government. Okay, so we got a bunch of those. But we don't have very many on spiritual authority, yet it is, this one verse is super clear, right? And so I don't want to argue with this verse. So there is a concept called spiritual authority. There maybe is a, a leader who is um, put over you and is, is in, in charge of keeping watch over your soul. But here's, here's the thing. When we think of spiritual authority, we think that means that they have the right to tell us what to do and how to think. Okay? That I don't think is very biblical. As a matter of fact, I may have this one verse here in Hebrews 13, but I could easily give you probably a dozen verses that actually speak the opposite. Be careful who you submit to, for there are wolves in sheep's clothing out there. Don't trust everybody. Don't listen to everybody because they look like a Christian. Right? Beware of the wolves in sheep's clothing who are among you. Right? Cast them out. I've got, I mean, I really could probably get a dozen verses that say the very opposite of, of Hebrews 13. And so this concept of spiritual authority, it may not be as cut and dry as you think it is. And the way I like to look at it, and I think it's very helpful, is, is instead of talking about spiritual authority, talking about spiritual responsibility. I am not your spiritual authority, okay? But I do have a spiritual responsibility to help keep watch over your souls, to make sure that your real spiritual authority, which is the Bible, is being adhered to and is front and center in your life. Okay, spiritual authority your spiritual authority, it's the word. You don't have to do what I tell you to do. You do have to do what the Bible tells you to do. Now, in a perfect world, every teacher and pastor out there, they're doing their job by removing our own preferences and, and our own opinions. And we're, we're just saying, hey, here's what the Bible says. That's the perfect world. That's not how we operate, right? I'm more guilty than anybody else of just giving my opinion. Okay, but I want you to understand, as we're talking about the relationship between following a spiritual leader uh, with uh, being a spiritual leader, that just because they have a you are a, just because you have a spiritual leader does not mean that they are your authority. But it does mean, and you need to understand this, that they do have an added responsibility. And so here's what this looks like for you, okay? Very practically, because you guys are not going to be here for very long. You will eventually, you know, graduate college or turn 25, turn 26 and get married. And you're going to find probably a, another place to get fed and to serve. This is how you need to be thinking about it. 
Just because I go to a church doesn't mean I have to listen and obey to everything that they say. Doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that they say. That's dangerous. That's how we get cults. And that's how a lot of people are led astray at the end of the age. Okay. But what we do is we pick a place that we feel like the Lord is leading us. And if somebody is dubbed, quote unquote, spiritual authority, whether it's a pastor or an elder or whoever, a leader in the church that you are connected with and saying, I'm going to voluntarily submit under, what you're going to do is you're not going to follow blindly, but you are going to follow with a lot of grace, right? And you're going to give the benefit of the doubt and you're going to trust, but you're not going to put them in the place of God. And ultimately, you're not going to stand at the end of the age and give an account to the pastor. You're not going to stand at the end of the age and give an account even to your parents. You're not going to stand at the end of the age and give an account to anybody else other than Jesus. And so he's the one who you've got to listen to first and foremost here. And so I, I just, I say that because when we're talking about, hey, how do I follow a spiritual leader? Let me tell you how you don't follow a spiritual leader. You don't follow a spiritual leader by taking everything that they say and assuming it's the Lord that's really dangerous. And I will just tell you now more than ever, guys, it is vital that you are in the word for yourself. Like, like, like the sermons that you listen to from the pastors that you have voluntarily submitted under, that should be like 10%. I'm giving out a random number, but it should be like 10% of your day of your weekly Bible intake. I just, I want to, God, I don't ever read statistics. I read a statistic today that actually made me sick to my stomach. It is jacked with me all day. I was listening to a podcast of Michael Brown. I love Michael Brown. He's solid. He's somebody that you guys can listen to. He's really helpful. Um, Barna, they just put out a, if you're familiar with Barna, they're like the leading um, uh Pole service in Christianity. And they're, they're, they're really, really, um, ironclad. They're, they're really tight knit. The way that they do things is really above the board. And they, they put out a poll, um, talking to pastors and finding out how many pastors had what they're calling a biblical worldview. Okay. Biblical worldview. They define exactly what it is. It's actually a really low bar. I would say, you could hit all these things and probably still not have a biblical worldview. But their bar was low. But it was like, believes that the Bible is inerrant in the word of God. Believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that the devil is a very real being and, and, and not some fairy tale concept, not a symbol. Believe that he's coming back at the end of the age. Those kinds of things, right? Things that are like as basic as basic. It didn't even get into the social issues of the day. And here's what they found across the nation of America. This is why we're talking about spiritual authority, because you got to be careful who you submit under. This is, this is horrifying. All pastors in America, okay, we're talking Protestant pastors here, 37% of them adhere openly to a biblical worldview. 37%. And then... They go even deeper and they break down the different categories of pastors that they interviewed throughout the nation. Are you ready for this? Senior lead pastors, they have the highest percentage of um, adhering to a biblical worldview with 41%. Four out of 10 senior pastors in America, according to Barna, which I'm telling you, they are, they are as um, 
they're as reputable as you can be. Okay, four out of 10 senior pastors believe that the Bible is inerrant, unfallible, infallible, is the word of God, and that Jesus is the only way. That's senior pastors. They, they lead the charge. How about associate and uh, assistant pastors? They're second. 28% of associate pastors in America adhere to a biblical worldview. You ready to get even more sick? Teaching pastors, 13% of them. 13% of the employed teaching pastors in America adhere to a biblical worldview. That means 13% of the pastors whose entire job is to study and teach and deliver the word to the congregation, only 13% of them actually believe that that very word is inerrant. Children's and youth pastors, um, they're just under that with 12, 12%. And what's interesting is they actually called some different Bible colleges across the nation and they talked to not just professors, but up and coming students as well. And then executive pastors, if you guys don't know what an executive pastor is, think like a director of operations for the church. They're the lowest with 4%. Which means you have a bunch of people running church like a corporate business who don't even believe in Jesus, essentially. The people in charge of hiring and firing for churches, that's the executive pastors. And 4% of, 4 of them believe in a biblical worldview. Can you imagine the people that they're hiring? The people that they're hiring for a children's ministry position or a middle school ministry position or a high school ministry position or a young adult ministry position. Does that not make you just nauseous? I, I, I tend to be really pessimistic sometimes, but I wasn't expecting that. Like that was far more pessimistic than I expected it to be. You, why do I say that? There's still a lot of really good Bible-believing preachers out there. There's still a lot of really good churches out there, okay? There's a lot of them. But not every one of them who looks good on the outside, who gives a good message or who has good worship is actually fit to carry the spiritual responsibility for your soul. And so we do need to be careful. Yes, we have Hebrews 13 that says, hey, obey your leaders. Absolutely. But you need to be careful who you dub as your leader. It's really important. Okay? So I say that it's more important than ever before to, to understand that just because you are uh, in a church or just because you have a pastor does not mean that they are your spiritual authority. And according to this thing, they're not even fit to be that, as if you could be fit to be that, but that's crazy. And that means that you do not have to do and, and believe and, and uh, agree with everything that your quote-unquote spiritual um, authority tells you. But you do. If you're going to, if you say, I'm going to be a part of a church or I'm going to be a part um, and follow a spiritual leader, you do need to give them the benefit of the doubt. That means you probably should trust them. And that means you heavily consider everything that they say. That doesn't mean you buy it hook, line, and sinker, but you genuinely take it back to the word, take it in prayer, okay? I've watched a lot of people get hurt with this understanding that I'm supposed to blindly follow. And if I don't, then I'm 
in rebellion and I'm not humble. That's not how this works. And when I'm talking tonight about the art of following, that's the message, the art of following, what I don't want you to think in any capacity is that you are to blindly follow and blindly do and blindly not question. That's not what we do. Especially when you have pulpits in America like this. It doesn't mean you're arrogant about it. But it does mean you don't just blindly submit. Amen? Amen. Okay. So what I thought I would do is read the text to you tonight. And then I'm going to give you six temptations uh, when following. Six temptations when following. Okay, so remember, Israel is facing the Red Sea on this side. And now you've got uh, uh, Pharaoh and his army cresting the hill. And this is uh, Exodus 14, 10 through 12. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, you ready for this? This is where I want you to pay attention. This is what they say to Moses. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Verses 16 or 13 through 16. But Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by, See that the salvation of the Lord, uh, which he will accomplish for you today, for the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Uh, Oh, Lord, help me. I lost it. Why are you crying out to me? Essentially, he goes, take your staff. We're going to part the Red Sea. I'll bring the Red Sea, dump it on the chariots. Okay, what I want you to pay attention to is this phrase, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Six temptations of following a spiritual leader, okay? Number one is to assume that if your leader was truly following God, your well-being wouldn't be threatened. Let me say it again. One of the temptations of following a spiritual leader when you or I are in the place where we are not the head guy, we are following the head guy, is to assume that if your leader was truly following God, your well-being wouldn't be threatened. That's what we think sometimes. And what can happen is we are following a spiritual leader. Things may not go the way that he said they were going to go, or things may not go the way that we thought that they should go. And we start to get frustrated and we start to get angry. And we start to assume, well, wait a second, my well-being here is not front and center. I'm not being cared for the way that, that I want. Um, I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not getting the things that I desire. My preferences aren't being, aren't being uh, uh, met. And so what we can do is we can assume that, well, because those things aren't happening and my well-being isn't front and center, maybe our leader isn't actually hearing from the Lord. Because if our leader was hearing from the Lord, my preferences would be met and I would feel cared for and I would feel like, like I'm lockstepped in exactly where we're supposed to be. This is right. 
And that wasn't the case. You see, Moses led perfectly in this instance. He got clear direction from the Lord. You're to avoid this town. You're to go by this town. Then you're going to go into the desert. You're going to go straight to the Red Sea. He was doing exactly what God had told him to do. And it led to a situation where the people felt threatened, scared, vulnerable, and confused. And the temptation is to think that when we get in that moment, that our leader has made the mistake. Our leader must not have been hearing from the Lord because what our leader said is we're going to go to the promised land. And instead, we're facing an impassable sea and there's an army behind us. And that's exactly the temptation that Israel falls into in this category. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys. As a professional follower, I have so been in this place where things have not met my expectation. And my initial gut response is to go, maybe they're just not hearing from the Lord. And what we see clearly is Moses actually was hearing from the Lord. They just had really poor expectations. When the Lord leads you through a person to the valley of the shadow of death, what do you do? We're all comfortable with the Lord leading us to the valley of the shadow of death. Amen? Right? Everybody's okay with that. Everybody's okay with God leading us to trials and and rocky seasons. But what we tend to forget is that he typically does that through people. And he typically does it through leaders or can do it through leaders. And so what do you do in the moment? Not where circumstances have led you to a hard place, where leadership leads you to a hard place. And the Lord through leadership says, I'm going to take you to the valley of the shadow of death. What is your response? You get a backbite? Are you gonna bail? Slander? Rally the troops? Or are you gonna honor? Are you gonna trust? Are you gonna help the tr- are you gonna try to make the situation better and try to be a help? And I'm gonna be honest with you guys. If I'm if I'm just telling you how it is, my tendency is, is to not do any of the right things that I just said we should do. My tendency is to slander. My tendency is to say, see, I told you so. My tendency is to rally the troops. My tendency is to bail. But just because your well-being seems to be threatened and just because the circumstance doesn't seem um, uh, enjoyable, that doesn't mean that your leader isn't hearing from the Lord. And I think that's just the thing I I want you to understand. Here's the, so the first temptation is to assume that if your leader was truly following God, your well-being wouldn't be threatened. As we can see via the text, that's just not true. Number two, to assume that your leader has malicious motives. It's very quick, very easy to assume that our leadership, not necessarily our leadership at Gate City, but just in general, Right? When things don't go our way, when things get difficult and our well-being isn't put first, seemingly, it's easy to assume that the leader has malicious motives. Look at what they say to Moses. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? It's as real as it gets. They turn around and they start to accuse Moses 
not just of not hearing from the Lord, not just of making an oopsies or a mistake. They say, this was your plan all along, wasn't it? You've always been fed up with us, Moses. You always thought you were higher than everybody else when you were in your palace with Pharaoh. I bet this is what you wanted all along, isn't it? Bring us out into the, into the desert so that we would die and the sand would bury us and you wouldn't have to deal with it. That's what they just said. They immediately, like, I mean, instantly, armies cresting the hill and it's, a, and it's the gut reaction of this nation to turn around and to assign malicious motives to Moses. You been there? I've been there. I have fallen in this trap more times than I could possibly tell you. And, and, and I'll tell you, this, this um, temptation to assume the worst about your leader, it's actually a violation of 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, this is the love chapter, and it tells us how we're supposed to love, and that is not how we're supposed to love our spouse, it's how we're supposed to love everyone, okay? And this is what it says. It says that love's patient, it's kind, right? Get all the way to the end. It says it believes the best and hopes the best. It believes the best and hopes the best. That means as a Christian, the kind of love that we give is a love that says, even though I may not even, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't, I'm going to believe the best and assign good motives to you. That means I'm always going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But And then we're comfortable sometimes giving the benefit of the doubt to other people. And we're comfortable definitely with people giving us the benefit of the doubt. But, but when a leader does something wrong that seems to, to hurt us or ignore us or to cause us difficulty or pain, it's so easy for us to be like the children of Israel. It's so easy for me, guys, to be like the children of Israel and turn around and be like, you meant to do it. You never liked me. You never wanted me here. This was your plan all along. But we don't get to do that. We don't get to violate 1 Corinthians 13. And we don't get to assign motives to people. And I'll just tell you, as somebody who, I'm like kind of middle management in our uh, environment. And, and so I, I know a lot of middle management people. Right? I know a lot of upper management people. I know most pastors, and definitely all the pastors in our environment, but most pastors that I've ever come into contact with, they always mean well. They might've said the thing wrong. They might've had a moment and they didn't know what to do. But every pastor I know has hurt a bunch of people and has never meant to hurt a bunch of people. And how many of you guys have ever been in that place where you've done something wrong, you made a mistake, you did something that you didn't even know you did? And somebody starts assigning those motives to you. You guys, raise your hand if you've been there. Like that's a painful place to be. And I'll just tell you, it happens to leaders all of the time. It, doesn't, it actually doesn't really happen to me a whole lot, at least that I hear, but I know so many pastors, right? It happens to them, man. And I'll just, I'll tell you this, okay? Um, if you can just give people the benefit of the doubt, it keeps the hurt and the pain from being personal. If you can just assume they didn't mean to do it, they had no clue, and you cannot just say it and give lip service to it, but you can really have a heart posture that says that, then anything that happens, it's not personal. And it only becomes, we only become offended and we only get bitter or we only get really angry when it's personal. If somebody doesn't, if somebody accidentally spills water on me, I am not angry. 
I'm a little miffed about the situation. Doesn't change the fact that I'm cold and wet. I've got to deal with it, but I'm not angry. Somebody takes that glass of water and goes and shoves it in my face. I'm going to get a little angry right now. It's personal. And I'll just tell you guys what Israel did in this moment was they made it personal. Was there not enough land in, in Egypt for us that you needed to bring us out to the wilderness that we would die? Is that your problem, Moses? And so as you are learning how to follow and how to, how to um, uh, honor and come underneath spiritual leadership in your life, just know that one of the temptations you're going to have when things don't go well is to assume the worst in your leader. And we just can't do that. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean uh, that we always assume that everything's above the board. We don't necessarily go to that extreme, but we don't just immediately knee jerk into, he tried to do this to me. So we see that Israel says that. Uh, here's the next thing. To assume that your leader should listen to you. I'm going to read it. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? They literally, so they go, not only did you mean to do this, why didn't you listen to us? You should have listened to us. We told you, leave us alone. Go ahead and raise your hand. Has that been you? You get guilty. You're like, why didn't they listen to me? I'll tell you, I live here again. I live here because I'm opinionated. And all my opinionated people in the room said, amen. Everybody who's got just enough knowledge to be dangerous. They're not shy. They're external processors. They don't mind conflict. We get this temptation more than anyone. Why didn't you listen to me? It goes south that our immediate response is not one of grief, but it's one of vindication. Oh, I knew it was going to happen. Should have listened. I tried. You know what I'm talking about? There's this temptation that we have as followers that says, well, if they would just have listened to us, then things would have been better. But the reality was Moses' job was not to listen to the people of Israel. Moses' job as a spiritual leader was to listen to the Lord. Moses' job was to hear from the Lord, how are we going to lead this group of people and to go out and to implement it? Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't ever hear the people of the Lord, as a matter of, or the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, we see that he sets up an entire team of elders to do that. He's like, hey, this is important. We want to hear from them. But at the end of the day, we can make the assumption that if our leader had just listened to us, that things would have gone well. If Moses had just listened to the nation of Israel, or I'm sorry, if Moses would have just listened to the nation of Egypt, things would have not gone well for them. They would have stayed in slavery. Because contrary to what we might think, we will always choose our comfort over our freedom. Okay? If they had it their way, they thought they were convinced, they knew what was right. We didn't stay in Egypt, Moses. That was not right. That was not what the Lord had for them. And that was, not, uh, that was robbing them of the blessing that God had for them. To assume your leaders should just listen to you. Number four, here's the fourth temptation that they make. To assume that you know what's best for your fellow followers. To assume that, well, because your leader's removed and you're on the ground, right? Oh gosh, Lord help me. I get so, I'm, I do it all the time. 
I'll get convicted right now, right here, because I'm telling you, I have in so many different opportunities, I have basically done this exact same thing. Well, listen, uh, I appreciate it, Pastor. I appreciate what you're saying, but you're not the one meeting with people. You're not the one getting in conversations with everybody. And I'm telling you, I know what's best. I'm a fellow follower. That means I'm familiar with the plight of the follower far more than you are in your ivory tower. And that's what they say. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They assumed that they knew what was best for their fellow group of followers. And that's a temptation that we need to avoid. Number five, how to, um, the, the fifth temptation of following. <laughs> Dang, man, this, this hurts. <laughs> to assume you could do it better. When we're following a spiritual leader and things don't go the way that we want or we think they should have gone, maybe there's pain and confusion or hurt. I'm not saying that we don't address those things, but when that happens, it's very tempting to think that we could have done it better. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the story that ministers to me, it has nothing to do with Exodus, unfortunately. i just going to shoehorn it in there. Um, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And I highly encourage you to go home and read 2 Samuel 15, because this is I'm pretty confident in saying it's probably the most convicting passage I've ever come across. So here's the stage, right? I'm going to prove to you the whole, assume you could do, do it better. David has been made king over Israel. Things are going really well. Remember the old king, his name was Saul. Remember that? Right? And King Saul was a total jerk. King Saul was the kind of leader that was absolutely wretched. King Saul tried to have David killed. King Saul was just wicked beyond you could possibly imagine. He was so bad. Yet David didn't harm him, didn't go to war against him, allowed the Lord to deal with him and bring David into the kingdom at the right time. Even though David was already meant to be king, even though David was already anointed to be king. And so 2 Samuel 15 comes on the scene and David is king. And he's built the tabernacle and things are going really well. As a matter of fact, he's spending all of his time in this place of 24-7 worship and prayer, staring at the Ark of the Covenant, writing the book of Psalms as we know it. And he has this son. And the son, his name is Absalom. And Absalom gets sick and tired of watching David shirk his responsibilities as king and spend all of his time in the tabernacle of David. And he starts to rally the troops. And so here's what he does. See, David's job was to judge the people, right? And so people would have quarrels, they'd have issues. And, and so they'd bring them before the court of the king. And then David would go, okay, I'm giving a verdict. Uh, you owe this person this amount of money. Split the land in half, right? Whatever, right? He would give judgments and verdicts based on personal situations. But it, that was his kingly responsibility. That was the expectation that his followers had of him, but he was consumed with doing something else. Something that the Lord had him doing that people didn't have him doing. Building a tabernacle. One thing I desire that I would dwell in the house of God all the days of my life. That's what he's talking about. The house of God made the tabernacle. And so he's, he's not making judgments on the people. Hey, listen, I want you to key on this. He's actually not doing what is his earthly responsibility. 
And Absalom gets so frustrated and he gets sick and tired of it. He's got some pride and some selfish ambition in him. And he's also got some righteous anger because he's like, look, dude, you're supposed to be leading these people and you're not doing a good job. And so here's what Absalom does. He falls into the fifth temptation. He goes, I can do it better. And so he meets everybody at the gate as they're coming to get their verdicts read. And he tells them, hey, listen, there's nobody here to, to, to read your verdict. There's nobody here to make a judgment. There's nobody here to help you. The king, he's not here. And he didn't appoint anybody to be here. You're out of luck. But here's what he does. He goes, but I can do it for you. See, I'm the king's son. I think I could probably do it better than David. I'll step in. And he starts to do what I call rallying the troops. What the Bible calls um, winning the hearts of man. And he starts to gain favor for all of David's followers because David's followers, they're, they're frustrated with David too. And now you got a guy who, who is kingly and princely and looks good on the outside and, and he's stepping in and he's lending a helping hand and he's, he's inserting himself into a position that he has no business being in. But they start to love Absalom. And Absalom starts to buy the lie that David shouldn't even be king. I would do it better. And he feeds his own ego. And I'm sure he didn't even realize he was doing it in the moment. But somewhere along the line, there was a shift. And he said, what's best for the people is that I would overthrow David, my father. And so that's what happens. And he takes a bunch of men and he storms the, the, the castle, storms David's palace. And David, being the good godly man that he is, probably walks out of the tabernacle, sees this all stuff's going on. And he has a fight. He doesn't defend himself. He leaves and he runs. And he basically says to Absalom, you can have it. It's yours. That's fine. I don't need it. One thing I desire, one thing I seek, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Absalom, though, can't take it. And he's hit with a fit of rage and just frustration and, you know, anger and bitterness towards the king who was shirking the responsibilities and, and, and not being the good leader that he, was, that he thought he should be. And um, he pursues his own father uh, and uh, tries to kill him. And the, it basically ends up kind of hilariously, he's on his horse chasing after his father and his hair, his long hair gets stuck in a tree branch. Horse keeps going, he's dangling there. And then one of uh, David's generals comes up to him and stabs him and kills him. That's how Absalom dies. And it's always been such an insightful story for me that proves the very point that I'm trying to make that so often with leadership, when they're doing something that we don't think they should be doing, I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about just not leading the way that we think that they should be leading or doing the things that we think that they should be doing as a leader. It's so easy for us to assume that we could do it better. And if that, if that thought is left unchecked, it leads to not just assuming that we could do it better, but saying we have the responsibility to overthrow the guy for the sake of the people. I've watched it happen in churches, I've watched it happen in youth groups, and we see in the Bible. And that thought of I could do it better, if left unchecked, will lead to you metaphorically hanging by your hair with a knife in your gut. This is a little bit of a joke. But it doesn't go well. Now, here's the thing that strikes me about Absalom in that story. You guys probably don't know this. Absalom was the rightful king after David. 
Yeah. See, he was David's firstborn son. It would have been Absalom's had he just waited. Isn't that fascinating? Absalom would have gotten the throne. He would have been king and he would have had God's blessing, David's blessing, the people's blessing, had he not just assumed he could do it better and then try to usurp David's authority. He just got impatient. And it's always been a lesson if anybody in this room is charismatic, if anybody in this room, you have um, the gift of gab and you can, you can make people like you just by walking into a room and you're fun. Some of you guys, you just have that. You just need to know that you are more susceptible to being Absalom than you could possibly imagine. And if you get frustrated and you get angry and you get bitter and you see that leadership is doing something that you don't like, it's going to be very easy for you just by nature of your personality. All it takes is one venting session to start rallying troops around you. Yeah, you're right. I can't believe they're doing that. That's ridiculous. You're right. That, that, that is shirking his responsibility. Absalom, you're totally right. It's really easy for us to do. And the warning in scripture is that we don't rally the troops. And when leadership's not meeting our expectation, we don't go around and, and slander and we don't, we don't go around and speak ill and we don't rally the troops. And guys, I'm, I'm just, again, I'm preaching to myself because I'm telling you I've done it. And that's where I found that passage and the Lord was like, yeah, here's your metaphorical spiritual spanking. Don't do this, Casey. You have the ability to do this, so don't do this. And that does not mean if there's hurt, pain, confusion, or mixed expectations that you don't go to your pastor and talk about it, or you go to your spiritual leader and talk about it, or go to your mentor and talk about it. You may need to do that. If you can't get over it, just you and the Lord, you need to go to your pastor. You need to go to your spiritual leader. You need to go to whoever it is that, that seems to have hurt you or missed, or, 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 uh, messed you, missed your expectation. Go talk it out. And what you'll find, literally, almost all of the time, there was somehow a misunderstanding. There was somehow um, uh, that you guys just, you, your wires got crossed. And once truth is shed on it, it's like, oh man, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. It's so much easier. So assume that you could do it better. By the way, Miriam and Aaron, they would do the very same thing uh, in the book of Exodus. And we're going to see that uh, later. Actually, in the book of Numbers, I think it's Numbers 12, Numbers 13. And God would, he would deal with Miriam accordingly. Okay. Here's the sixth temptation and final temptation of being a follower. Um, the first one I said, I just want to reiterate them. The first one I said is to assume that if your leader was truly following God, then your well-being wouldn't be threatened. The second is to assume that your leader has malicious motives. The third is to assume that your leader should just listen to you. The fourth is to assume that you know what's best for your fellow followers. Number five was to assume that you could do it better. And number six is to assume the role of the accuser. And that's what they do here. They immediately build the case against Moses and they tell everybody about it. And it's really easy for us to do. Now, I just want to reiterate, I am not, there's literally not a situation in Gatekeepers at all uh, or Gate City that's got me even thinking about this. Okay, we just happened to be here in the text and so I started praying through it. All right, so I'm not thinking about anybody, I'm not thinking about a situation. But it's really easy for us to be the accuser of the brethren rather than the advocate. I say that all the time because that's really where our bend is. 
when somebody wrongs us or somebody hurts us or somebody doesn't meet our expectations, that the, the thought and the tendency is that we'll start building the case as to why they shouldn't be in the position that they're in. And that's not really, that's not really what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to advocate for our leaders and we're supposed to advocate for our brothers and sisters. So the sixth temptation is that we would assume the role of the accuser. And now I wanna give you, we're about to land the plane. We are landing the plane. Uh, briefly, five final thoughts to consider um, about following. Number one, and I've said this, but it's important. Following isn't blind submission, but rather discernible trust. Following somebody is not blind submission, but it is discernible trust. Number two, following isn't less valuable in the kingdom than leading. Now, so many of us, we think it's leader, follower, and you just need to understand that it's leader, follower. It's not this, it's this. They're equal. As a matter of fact, in the kingdom, it actually seems like those who get the most glory in eternity are the followers and not the leaders. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Whoever is the greatest here on earth will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And ultimately, as believers and as Christians, the most valuable thing that we can do in the kingdom is not lead a bunch of people, but serve a bunch of people. Not be a leader, but to be a servant. And I'm just telling you, when I, if, I'm, if I'm honest with myself and I were to list out the best Christians that I know, the people that I am most impressed with, the people that I feel like the Lord is most impressed with, it's not Billy Humphrey, though I love him. It's not me. It's definitely not me. But, you know, I see all my issues. It's not Dustin. It's not Lou Engle, Mike Bickle. It's literally the guy that you would never know. If I told you his name, you wouldn't even know who he is. He's faithful to serve people every opportunity he gets, lives in poverty so that he can give away everything that he has because no earthly possession compares to, for him to the age to come and he wants to put all of his treasure in the age to come. He's not leading anybody. He's not mentoring anybody. He's literally just serving. Serves here on the platform in the prayer room a bunch of times throughout the week in slots that you'd never see him. And when I think about what really is the most valuable in the kingdom of heaven, and I think... Is it Lou Engle or is it the guy that I'm thinking of? I, I gotta be honest with you. I kind of think if the kingdom was full of this guy rather than Lou Engle, the world might be in a lot better shape. No shade on Lou Engle. Freaking love Lou Engle. But I think we sometimes minimize the, the value and the importance of a faithful follower. Somebody who's just there to serve. Someone who's just there to honor someone who's there to help other leaders take ground. Like that's so valuable to the Lord, guys. And some of you, you've got a call. You're gonna be the top tier guy. Some of you guys, you may feel called to be second, you know, the second guy like me. Some of you guys may not have any desire at all to do any kind of kingdom leadership. And I'm just going to tell you, that does not disqualify you from being valuable. You may be like, I just wanna work in the marketplace. I just wanna work in a cubicle. 
um, enjoy life, enjoy people, and, and minister as I see fit. And I'm just going to serve every, every chance I get. Every need that I see, I'm going to try to make. I'm telling you that it matters more to the Lord than somebody leading a thousand member crusade or a 10,000, you know, conference, 10,000 person conference. It's so much more valuable. So following isn't less value, isn't less valuable than leading. Uh, number three, this is a really important one. The best followers make the best leaders. The best followers make the best leaders. And what will happen is sometimes the Lord will put you in a position where you need to learn to follow. And what he's actually trying to do is get you to learn to follow so that you can learn to lead. This is really, really, really important. If you cannot follow and serve another person's vision, you cannot and are unfit to lead people to follow and serve your vision. And it says a lot about a man in particular if he can submit, follow, trust, serve, and honor the vision of another person. And so I'm going to make the point real quick because uh, you guys are all, you know, you're at, uh, what is it? You're at cuffing age, right? You're, you have the ability to get married. You're thinking about getting married. You're like, yeah, uh, that would be awesome. Some of you in the room are like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Some of you are like, that's a lot of problems, right? If you do it right, probably not. Ladies, when you're thinking about a man and you're entertaining the thought and you see him in church, and you see him worshiping, and you see him doing kids ministry, and he's got abs, and you're like, oh yeah, that's my man, glorified body and all, right? When you see him, what I need you to do before you make the commitment to, 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 to date him and potentially marry him, you need to figure out how well he follows. Because one day he's going to lead your home. And if he's a terrible follower and he can't, he can't serve somebody else's vision, if he can't take correction, if he can't take um, rebuke, if, if he can't be challenged by leaders and those around him, if he has no people that he is submitted to as mentors or spiritual leaders who are pouring into his life and he's, and he's saying, I, I will submit and trust this. If he can't do that, I promise you, he's not gonna be a good leader for your home. You, I can always tell who is going to make the best leader in the kingdom by how well they follow? Always. And so, ladies, as you're considering the man, I'm telling you, you need to ask yourself those questions. Does he have a mentor? Does he have a pastor pouring into him? Can he take correction? How well does he follow and champion other people's vision? Or is he just flying solo and doing his own thing? Because somebody who follows, they, they understand how hard it is to follow and so when they become a leader, they follow really well, right? Like I just had this conversation with somebody um, who there was, I was talking to a guy who was not in career ministry and then a guy who was in career ministry his whole life, right? And, and, and the guy who was not in career ministry his whole life, he makes really good decisions for his volunteers. The guy who has been in career ministry his whole life makes some questionable decisions for his volunteers, and I was talking to the two of them. We were just, we were, and we were laughing about it. And I realized that the guy who wasn't in career ministry, the reason he makes better decisions for his volunteers is because he remembers what it was like to be one. He remembers how hard it is to work 50, 60 hours a week and then to volunteer here on the weekends and to volunteer at the church on, on Wednesday nights. And, and so he, he understood the plight of being a follower. And it actually makes him probably the best leader that I've ever been around because he, he thinks like that. He's, he's like, hey, I was one. And so now I kind of know how to lead. Does that make sense? 
Okay, so the best followers make the best leaders. Uh, number four, sometimes it's hard to salute the man. Instead, salute the uniform. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Sometimes it's really hard to just trust a spiritual leader in our life. They may not be in any kind of sin. If they're, if they're like in rebellious sin, then you could just leave them. That's fine, right? But I'm talking about like a godly leader who's trying and maybe just not meeting your expectations. Doesn't seem to be doing leadership as well as you think you should be doing leadership. And it's, and it's hard to salute him as a person or her. What I would say is there's a saying in the military, you salute the uniform, not the man. In other words, you can trust and honor and, and submit based upon the hierarchy that God set up, based on the position of office, not necessarily based on the person. You may not like, I've, listen, I've had spiritual leaders in my life who I'm like, I don't really like you, but there's nothing I can really point to in the Bible that says that you shouldn't be a good spiritual leader. You just don't like you. And the Lord taught me, hey, that's okay. You don't have to like every spiritual leader that you have, but I want you to honor, trust, and salute the uniform. I've put him over you for this season and I want you to do it well. And so sometimes that's what we do. We salute the uniform. And then number five, um, God loves it when followers honor even, dishonor, an, uh, even a dishonorable leader. God loves it when a follower honors even a dishonorable leader. Um, I said honors, not submits. If you have a dishonorable leader, you don't want to submit to him. But just because he's dishonorable doesn't give you the license to be dishonorable back. You see this so clearly in the book of Daniel where you have um, da uh, Daniel who's literally been taken from his home and he's serving the most wicked king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar does horrible things, um, starts killing his friends, starts killing his family, starts killing everybody who doesn't bow down and worship the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel finally gets uh, the interpretation of this dream and the interpretation is that God's finally gonna judge Nebuchadnezzar. It's awesome. You think if you're Daniel in that moment and you've, you've been serving under the most wicked and dishonorable person on the planet and you get the, the glimpse that God's bringing judgment and it's gonna be horrible, you'd be like, yes, vindication. You deserve this. Ha, Daniel doesn't do that. He actually, his response, he says this, he says this to Nebuchadnezzar. He gives the interpretation and he goes, oh, if the dream were only meant for your enemies, my Lord. And there's like this well of compassion that he's trying to honor his leader, even though his leader is dishonorable. It's pretty stunning. And by the way, the story would end up with Nebuchadnezzar giving his life to the Lord. And I can't help but wonder if part of that isn't because the faithfulness of Daniel to honor even when he was being dishonored. So just because a leader does do something dishonorable, right? I'm, don't submit to him. If he got a crappy leader and he's like sinful and dishonorable and he's like woven sheep's clothing, get out of there. But even so, you can do it in such a way that even if he was your enemy, you can do it in a way that's honoring because Jesus said to love your enemies. Peter says, um, love the brethren and honor everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.